Welcome to the Ad Dot Podcast again, and uh, we have Pierre Poirot with us today. And uh, I, I've tried hard to say his uh, name properly, and you know, with the French accent, I guess the R's are uh, the the most problematic. But I will allow Pierre to uh, say his name himself. Hi, Vaughn, and thank you for having me. My name is Pierre Pureur. That's the correct pronunciation. But don't worry, nobody. Not even my wife can pronounce it correctly, so you're in good company. Oh, good. So um, look forward to interviewing you today. Actually, this is our second interview. The first interview had some technology problems with it, so we're re-recording. And I think this is probably a bit better episode, uh, less questions. So in inviting uh, Pierre to join us, he is now an independent consultant and kind of uh, retired from Travelers Insurance as a chief architect in uh, Connecticut area. Um, what are you doing these days, Pierre? What am I doing these days? Uh, basically, writing. I'm, I'm writing quite a few articles, uh, which I publish on LinkedIn. I'm also working on an article that's going to come out, hopefully, on uh, uh, Stack Overflow. So we'll see. And uh, giving some podcasts. So... Um, Explain to it. You're a co-author of the book uh, "Continuous Architecture," and this is in the setting of uh, the cloud and and agile and DevOps these days, um, which is very popular. <clears throat> so, can you explain to us what is continuous architecture, and how would you define it? Absolutely. So we actually, uh, Marat Erder and I introduced the concept of continuous architecture back in 2016. That was the first uh, continuous architecture book. And at the time, we organized a continuous architecture around six principles. Simple principles, they're they really how we think, they describe how we think about architecture. So in no particular order, the idea was the first one, think products rather than projects. Nothing really revolutionary, but it's important. Uh, focus on quality attributes. Don't try to architect according to functional requirements, but quality attributes are what, what's driving the architecture. The third one, delay, delay design decisions until they are absolutely necessary. Don't really rush, don't, uh, don't rush to design. Try to design based on facts, not on uh, basically on what you think uh, could it be. Fourth one, architect for change. Try to, as much as possible, think small, but not too small. There is a balance on the, on the small there. The fifth one was really about architect for build, test, and deploy, as well as operate. Uh, that's important because most, architect, most of our architects think, okay, so we're going to build a system, we're going to architect around that, and we're going to throw the code ab above the wall, and somehow it will run. Well, we think that it's important to, to think also how is it going to be tested, how is it going to be deployed, how is it going to be operated, and that has big, big implications. Implications, sorry, on uh, things like resilience and scalability. And the last one was really the first. The first five were really technical. The last one was more about your organization, the way you model your organization, really, really drives basically the the, the design of the system. That's, of course, that's what, what is known as Conway's principle. And uh, try to think in terms of how do, you, how do you want to organize your teams to basically deliver a system which, is, which works well. So those were the five, the six, I'm sorry, the six basic principles. And uh, we've, we thought about those principles and say, oh, that's great, okay? But they, they really describe how we think about architecture. They, don't really, they are not really very prescriptive. So the idea of a new book was we complemented the principles with some essential activities, which really drive you to produ producing an, arch an architecture design. And the, the qualities, are, I'm sorry, the, the activities are focused on quality attributes, because quality attributes are very important for the architecture. They actually drive the architecture. Drive architectural decisions. Decisions are the most important unit of work for an architect. Know your technical debt. No matter what you do, you're going to create technical debt. So you're going to have to deal with that. And it's kind of pay me now or pay me later. And then, most importantly, implement some feedback loops. So Because nobody is right the first time, the second time, the third time. You put something out there. 
and you look at the feedback and you basically adjust your architecture you design. So those are the activities. And then on top of that, we have some a toolbox that really thinks are well-known tools like tactics, logs, decision, I'm sorry, decision logs, utility trees, and so on and so forth. So that's in a nutshell what continuous architecture is about. Thank you for describing that and uh, the six kind of principles behind it. Um, so I think a lot of listeners would say about themselves that they are following a sort of shift left approach. And as I understand, maybe there are different nuances on shift left, but if we think of a timeline as reading or, or following a, um, a time increase from left to right, where left is earliest and right is uh, far, farther away, um, that means that we are starting to do certain things earlier in the development process. How would you describe shift left and um, maybe a bit more in, in detail? And also, um, so if we are using shift left uh, approach, do we still even need architecture now? Yeah, that's, that is a great question. Uh, I think what's happening is things like DevOps, now DevSecOps, I'm not sure what comes next. I mean, we we move the, the dev, DevOps to the left, the, the ops to the left, and when we move security to the left, and so we're shifting everything left. So I'm not sure what's going to be left on the right. But uh, all these things have really blurred a lot of roles, okay? And including architecture. Architecture is being, being blurred like many roles. And the interesting thing is that responsibilities still remain. You, we, we may get rid of a role, but the work needs to be done, done. Sorry, things like performance engineering, security engineering, and usability engineering still need to be done. So the, the, the bottom line, if the architecture is not suitable, then specialized tooling, specialized processes are not going to rescue the system. So you need somehow to have a solid foundation of architecture I mean, that doesn't mean, by the way, that you need architects. It just means some, that you need some, somebody, who, actually a group of people with skills that can actually provide that function. So what, hap what happens actually is quite, kind of interesting because a lot of people think they, shift, they shifted left. So they brought basically the ops to the left into the dev thing. They brought security in dev as well. And now they feel, they're feeling good. And they say, oh, we shifted left, we're done. Well, not so fast, because what's, hap what's happening is there's still a need for what I call continuous architecture. Architecture is really turning more and more into a continuous flow of decisions. And as a result, you need to actually take care of a, a number of things, even if you shift it left. So the project continues, you still have to deliver the product at some point. And you need to do things like, basically, architecture, architecture decision review or design decision review. You need to re re review risk continuously, okay? You need to update your fitness functions, for example. You need, if, you, if you're interested in security, you need to continuously do reviews of your threat modeling and monitor your metrics. And all these activities con continuously go, go on even long after you actually put the system in production. So shift left is kind of illusion, <coughs> a bit of an illusion, uh, so to speak, it's really, you need to think continuously about what you need to do throughout the life cycle of the system. Very good. So, um, well, we need architecture. And I think this leads to um, my next questions. And, and I have two questions about um, what used to be known more formally as um, non-functional requirements, but it's taken on not only a new name, but... Um, a bit of a new meaning, and that is quality attributes. So I have a couple of different questions about quality attributes. Why do quality attribute requirements drive software architectures? Okay. So I'm, I'm glad you actually went back to quality attributes because I know it's a small it's a small thing, but I, I do object a little bit to people using non-functional requirements. I mean, it sounds like requirements of a system to be non-functional, it doesn't, doesn't seem right to me. Anyway, so any blob of, of software can satisfy functional requirements. You don't need to architect the blob, right? You just can throw some code out, run it on a very large server, 
create a very large monolith, and uh, voila, you're done. Okay. Problem is, if you do that, you're going to find out very quickly your system is not going to last very long. In order for the system, for the architecture to be, or for the system actually, software system to be resilient and to be to last a long time at a reasonable cost, you need to think about what are your quality attribute requirements. And that's why we think that QARs shape a system. And they are really, really important. Here's the catch. Usually, they are badly defined or they are poorly defined. It's not unusual to look at things like, oh, the system must be fast or the system must be resilient or the system must be scalable. I don't know about you, Vaughn, but I don't know how to design a system based on that. And unfortunately, a lot of us get that from, from our, our customers. And when we push them, they usually come up with you know, estimates that don't really make a lot of sense, which drive to either under-designing or which is even worse, over-designing. So we really believe that, you know, quality attribute requirements, if you're going to drive the architecture, must be well-defined. And the way we think, you know, one, one, nothing is really best. I mean, I, I hate to, you, to say the best way, because that's, that's right. But an efficient way of, based on my experience, an efficient way of doing that is to use a technique which was really uh, made popular by the SEI uh, CMU, Carnegie Mellon SEI, which is really, as part of their ATAM, architecture trade-off methodology, they came up with a concept of scenarios. And the idea really was really about you create some scenarios that you define very carefully about, for example, scalability. And you define those scenarios with, they actually had more dimensions, but I usually use three dimensions for, for my scenarios. One is stimulus. So, for example, if we think about, basically, if we are, we are looking about um, performance, okay, stimulus is going to be someone is using the system. Could be a, uh, an external user or could be an outside, even outside um, uh, force. But something is using a system. Response means what does the system do in response to the system? So, for example, if a user decides to use transaction X, Y, Z, what does the system do? And then measurement, remember we're talking about performance here, is how quickly or how slowly the system respond. And what we're finding out, what we're finding out about, about this way of dealing with QARs is that it forces you to, to be very precise and define exactly how you want to measure your uh, quality attribute requirements. And this also forces your stakeholders to actually tell you in, in more precise terms, what do you actually need? What do you actually need as opposed to a system that is fast, a system that is scalable? So in terms of QARs, you know, QARs have changed through my career, okay? And I won't even bore you when I started, but from my career, what I've seen is QARs have evolved in terms of what are the most important ones. In this age of digital, we really think that there are four of them that are really important. Scalability, performance, resilience, and security. I don't have to convince you on security. I'm sure that everybody understands the value of security. Okay, performance, well, obvious, right? I mean, if the system doesn't perform well, then nobody's going to want to use it. So the system will die very quickly. Scalability is one which was not very popular 10 years ago but has become almost overpopular, you know, extremely popular because of the large e-commerce companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, that really have made scalability kind of number one. Um, and what's interesting about scalability, scalability can go up or down. We'll talk more about scalability in a minute. But if you look, look at what those companies have done, it's quite admirable. It's, they have done a lot of good work based on scalability, but that work is not for everyone. You are not Google. You are not Amazon. Unless, of course, you work for Google, you are for Amazon. But most of us are not. And the tactics that most companies use are usually not very applicable to most of us. And the last one is resilience. So resilience, I mean, uh, I keep on talking about a small story, you know, part of COVID. I mean, that's the whole, uh, the, the whole uh, pandemic going on. And 
part of COVID, what happened is there was a lot of people who had more time to work from home and had a lot of time on their hands. And they started basically trading securities, which is something we all do now. Uh, so securities became, trading securities became, instead of going through an, uh, through an advisor, you actually were able to trade and you're still able to trade directly. And that put a lot of orders on the trading systems. If you think Robinhood, not to mention them, but if you think Robinhood, for example, look at the number of outages they had basically over the last two years. It's kind of interesting. And you could argue that, you know, their goal was to get out of the gate and to, they were a startup initially, and to get a system out there, an MVP, basically minimum viable product, and get people to use it, which they did very well. Unfortunately, they were the victims of their own success. And I don't think that, you know, and again, I don't have any special insight on how they architect their systems, but I don't think that anybody, or I don't think a lot of people at Robinhood thought about how quickly they needed to basically scale up and how they had to be resilient. The problem is there were days, of course, there were huge swings in the market and still going on. And those are the days where people really are trying to trade. That's normal. You see your, your portfolio going down or up and you try to take advantage of that. And people are trying to trade and suddenly those systems are not available anymore. And that's not only the case with Robinhood. It also happened to other, to large, I won't mention any names, but it happened to very large, you know, well-established traders. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, resilience is, is hard. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a difficult quality attribute to satisfy, but it's definitely, if you don't, if you don't really, uh, if your system is not resilient, you're going to find out the hard way. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of wisdom in your statements there. Thank you for commenting on that. Now, I want to just preface my next question about, you know, the the quality attributes around, well, let me just say that to people who are listening to this, who are into domain-driven design, this may sound kind of foreign to them um, because functional requirements are, you know, in essence, what domain-driven designers are really interested in. But if we take from a pure architectural standpoint, why are quality attributes more important than functional requirements from a pure architectural context? Okay, so it's 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 actually quite simple. Basically, we are back to my statement of quality attributes shape the system, and if you if you ignore your quality attributes, you're going to basically design a system that basically will run for a little while, but, you know, will it perform? I don't know. Will it scale? Probably not. Will it be secure? Probably not. Will it be resilient? Not really. So, especially if you talk about a system that's exposed to external users, it may well be that your system is not going to last very long. So, honestly, I think that without quality attributes, there is no architecture. You can't really design your architecture. Okay, so it kind of sounds to me like the quality attributes are something that, I don't know, maybe we can get um, a sort of some of those things for free in the cloud. I mean, do you think that, that um, I'm not saying that you don't have to think about this because, you know, our uh, VLingo Zoom platform has resilience tooling in it. So yes, you have to think about resilience and, and design in resilience. But um, in using Kubernetes and in using Amazon or Google Cloud or Azure, do any of those things become easier? Or do you think it's just as um, challenging as it would be in a data center? So I believe that a badly designed system, if you port it, port it to the cloud, will still be a badly designed system running in the cloud. There is no escaping that. So if we take scalability, scalability is a little bit easier to discuss. Resilience gets a little bit involved and we don't, we don't have the whole day, unfortunately. But if you take scalability, for example, so there, there are a couple of misconceptions out there about scalability. One of them is that, well, my system runs in the cloud. So scalability is the problem of a cloud provider. And sometimes, and you're absolutely right, Vaughan, I mean, same goes for resilience, same goes for security. And not quite. It doesn't go that way. 
Okay, if you really take a badly designed system, something that really runs badly, doesn't really scale on your own computers, and you want to say, oh, you know what? I'm just going to take the whole thing. And usually, most things come under the uh, are designed as large, you know, one one big one big code base, and uh, nobody really knows too much what what's going on there, and uh, probably. You know, kind of system that started their life on the mainframe, probably you know half a century ago, and you somehow you kind of run that through a some kind of code transformation because clouds usually don't run COBOL. I mean, I, I don't know. I could be wrong on that, but I don't know too many clouds that run COBOL. So just take your old kind of vintage kind of you know 2000 uh, or maybe 1996 kind of uh, COBOL, CICS kind of system. And you transform it like some black box. And you turn that into something that looks like, looks more modern. And you pop, you kind of port that to the cloud. What you're going to find out very quickly is, number one, it's expensive, not only to port, but also to run that on the cloud. And number two, your system is not going to be scale, scaling anymore than it was scaling on your own infrastructure. The problem with cloud is that the cloud runs well, systems are designed for the cloud. Okay, so unless this goes back, remember my principle about basically architect for not only for build, also for test, deploy and operate. If you know you're going to operate on the cloud, you have to architect for the cloud, unfortunately. There's no such thing as saying, oh, you know, I don't really care. I'm going, to work, I'm going to create a system that runs on this amazing, you know, <laughs> virtual computer that doesn't exist yet. And I'm going to put that on a real computer and magic happens. Doesn't. There's no magic there. So, you know, that's one, one misunderstanding. The other misunderstanding is really calling a system scalable. Okay. So people say, oh, my system is scalable. And my answer is, what do you mean? Do you mean your database is scalable? Do you mean your code is scalable? What exactly do you mean by that? In reality, we found out that most of the time, the first thing which, is, which, which causes scalability issues is the database. Okay? The code usually will last a little bit longer in terms of scalability than the database. So when people tell me my system is scalable, my first question is, okay, show me the, the scalability test you have run against your database and prove to me your database is scalable. Yeah, interesting. So... Um, I haven't wasted my breath then in saying, don't count on Kubernetes or Kafka or um, the cloud to solve all your problems. No. Yeah. And uh, very, very good explanation of that. Okay. Let's uh, kind of shift here a little bit and get into another aspect of architecture. Why, why do you think that architecture decisions are so important and how do you personally or the teams you've worked with go about tracking architecture decisions? So it's actually, I'm glad you're asking this because one thing that, this is a big difference between the first book and the second book. The first continuous architecture book, we mentioned decisions, but at the time for us, decisions were important, but other things were important as well. The second book, which is basically five years later, based on the work and also uh, Owen Woods join us as a third author as well. And based on common experience, we start saying, you know, you know what? This continuous thing really applies to decisions. Architecture decisions is what remains when everything else has faded away. If people think of architecture as, and we all do, right? Very nice little diagrams or not so little because usually architects love to create diagrams. And uh, architecture diagrams, the more complicated, the better, because nobody can really read them except the person who actually created the diagram. And that makes that person look very smart. And who doesn't look like to, who doesn't like to be uh, looked as, as smart, right? So the, the whole concept of diagrams, and diagrams is important, but diagrams are just a way to communicate something to someone else. And if, so, if someone else cannot read your diagrams, you're not communicating. So you basically waste your time. And diagrams, honestly, I mean, so from time to time, Vaughn, I don't know if you if you've played that game, but I, I, I like to do that from time to time. I go back to my archives and I look at some architecture diagrams I created 10 or 20 years ago and I have a big laugh because usually, number one, I can't even read them anymore. And number two, I say, what the hell was I trying to do? 
Okay. That ramps are very temporary. They don't, they, they don't really, they don't do well with time. They, they just decay very quickly. What is important are decisions. Now, the trick of the decisions is how do you make sure that people remember them? Because if you make a lot of decisions, you, you need somehow to document them. Now, I know most people don't like to document, but certain things need to be documented. And suddenly, when, when someone makes a decision, that needs to be basically documented somewhere. Now, the best way to keep decisions in sync with the ultimate artifact, which is the code, because the code is really what we produce at the end of the day, is really to keep your decisions very close to your code. I mean, if you keep your code in GitHub, then by all means, keep your decision in GitHub. Okay? It really, there's no magic bullet there. This doesn't really matter where you keep your decisions, but so long as you keep them somewhere and you know where they are, Okay, and also, so when you make decisions, it's important to actually think in terms of okay, so what was the context of that decision? Because if you look back at ten years later, you probably forget what context was. So document the context, document who made the decision, when the decision was made, and one thing I really like to do with my decisions is let's document the alternatives. What does they think of? What does they reject? And then. What, basically, why did I decide to go that way? And then I will just throw one more at, uh, kind of at you at this point. What is the cost of undoing the decision? What if I was wrong? Okay? No matter how smart I am, I'm going to make wrong decisions. So at some point, I'm going to basically unwind the decision. What's the cost of doing that? And I think that most people don't like to think about that because, number one, they like to think that they make the right decisions, whatever right means. Okay? And number two, they don't like to think that, oh my God, at some point, maybe I was totally wrong, and the system that I thought needed to be scalable for a gazillion transactions only needs to be scalable for 10 transactions a minute. That happens. Yeah, for sure. Um, so there are, there are a number of architecture uh, decision record templates out there, and I think most of them are um, meant to be put into a code repository of some kind. Um, uh, Michael Nygaard's is mm -hmm. the one that I've used and maybe you have and others. Um, well, he has a recognizable name. Oh, yeah. He's smart, so why not? So, um, uh, okay, good. And it is important to keep those and, and look at them um, from time to time, as you said, review them. Okay, now we already sort of talked about the the quality attributes, the illities, and does the cloud take care of scalability? Well, as you said, there are some aspects of the cloud that make um, scalability more realistic, but of course our, our actual application design and our architectural uh, decisions and, and designs are quite important. So why do you think that scalability is particularly an architecture concern, and how would you define it? Okay. Start out with those. Yes. So uh, let's define scalability first because that's, that's an important thing. So the way I think of scalability, and everyone may have a different de uh, definition, but the way I think of scalability is really the property of a system to handle an increase or a decreased amount, amount of workload by increasing or decreasing the cost of a system. And I think that it's important to think in terms of decrease as well as, as increase. Everybody thinks, okay, so my system must be scalable, meaning that, okay, right now, I may be, I may be uh, able to process 100 transactions a minute. So six months from now, I should be able to process 200 transactions a minute, and then 1,000 transactions a minute, and so on and so forth. Okay, but what if suddenly my volume goes down and I need to process 10 transactions a minute, or maybe one a minute? If you think about company like Amazon, Okay, Amazon goes for peaks and valleys. Right now, it's probably the most busy part of the, of the year for them. You know, we're going to Black Friday, we're going into Cyber Monday, and so on and so forth. And basically, volumes increase a lot. But you also need to be able to shrink down and operate your system at a reduced cost when volumes are longer what they used to be. Uh, I used to work for an insurance company in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, it was actually interesting because we actually had, had managed to, to recognize the patterns, the volume patterns of basically 
uh, and this is retail insurance. So volume patterns during the week. Monday was a fairly quiet day. Tuesday, and don't ask, don't, don't even ask me to, to explain why, because that but used, you, Tuesday used to be the Tuesdays used to be very busy. Then volumes will go down Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Okay, and again up Monday, peak on Tuesday, and so on and so forth. And if you talk about Thanksgiving, basically, and it, we so, uh, some insurance we used to sell was car insurance. So do people buy more cars on the Thanksgiving weekend? I don't know, but certainly we had a peak of volume the Monday and the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. For a company like the one I used to work for, it was very important. This was, those were the pre-cloud days. So it was very important for us to actually be able not to over-dimension over our infrastructure and therefore have systems that could gracefully scale up or scale down. And I think that's, that's one aspect of scalability that people forget. Scalability needs to be thought in terms of, can I scale up? Yes, we want to fix of that. Can I also scale down? Also, did I over-provision my infrastructure based on what my business users told me, which is, oh, gee, you know, our forecast, our business expectation tell us that we're going to be able to sell, again, a gazillion policies a year. So why not dimensional system for that? Well, why not? Because that costs money. And uh, another oversized architecture running on an oversized infrastructure is an expensive thing. Yeah, for sure. And um, unnecessarily absorbing those kinds of costs. It's it's just something you can avoid um, in reactive architecture and, and programming. We call that elasticity, right? So it gives um, a good idea of being elastic. A, a system can scale out dynamically as load increases, as load decreases. We scale back in and we're basically um, using exactly what we need yeah at any given time. So that's the optimal. Yeah. Always keep in mind, basically, the cloud provider needs to make a living. And Amazon are very good at making a living, as we both know, uh, not to mention them. But uh, basically, and part of what they love is people who run, basically, over-dimension systems on infrastructure, because that way they can sell you more cycles than, than you really need. And... Uh, it's kind of important to always think of the economic aspect of the, of, the, of the software system. Something I more recently learned is that Amazon has about an 8,000% markup on bandwidth. Wow. 8,000%. So if, you know, if in your home you pay something for gigabit throughput, what would that be like if you multiplied by 8,000, right, or something? So... Mm-hmm. To, to that point, I mean, I think that one, one thing that uh, architects and software engineers forget often is that cost is a quality attribute. No, you don't see that too often. You, people basically say, oh, yeah, sure, performance, you know, scalability and so on, so on. But cost matters a lot. I mean, in a real world, in a non-software or hardware world, but, in a, you know, if you, if you hire an architect to design a house, a boat, one of the first questions that architect is going to ask you is how much money do you want to spend, Mr. Brandon? Always. Okay, I mean, basically, there's no such thing as an unlimited budget when you create a house or a boat. You really have to limit yourself. And architects usually pro- offer different options based on cost. I can build you the house, it costs so much, but your budget is so much, is that much, then I can build you that house and so on and so forth. We don't think like that. We don't, we don't really think too much about cost. And I think that's a shame because really being able to really offer to our stakeholders, say, okay, so if you spend that much money, okay, this is the kind of system we can build for you, and this is how much it's going to cost to run, to run it. But if you spend that amount of money, then you get a different system. I think, basically, our stakeholders don't realize that, and it's, it's a shame because we should really make that more, more apparent. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I think that, that uh, by the way, on, on that comment on... Uh... Um, bandwidth costs on on AWS. Um, I mean, you know, there are a lot of companies paying for that, and and maybe it's a reasonable cost, given um, you know their actual uses of bandwidth, how much bandwidth they they need to consume. But um, I think companies like Cloudflare and others are kind of 
offering a lot better choices in that. And and I found too that um, some companies are now deciding to leave the cloud. Mm-hmm. It has just become far too expensive. Unlike you know most of the ideas behind the cloud initially, people thought, hey, I you know I get rid of all my staff or a lot of my infrastructure staff and yep. and admins and so forth and and uh, we get rid of all this machinery look at how much money we're going to save and and then actually now they're finding out ah oh, that wasn't mm-hmm. uh, so true after all so then you know a company like cloudflare will step in and and kind of um, give you better way better numbers in terms of you know the, the kind of bandwidth costs so maybe that's a specialization for um, some companies to consider in that way. Okay, let's kind of completely shift gears now and, and talk about the book. Of course, we've been dancing around the book, so to speak, by the, the topics that we're discussing, but let's talk about the use cases that the book was designed around. Could you describe these? Tell us why the actual examples that you used are important for a book about continuous architecture. Well, so I think that... Uh... Again, based on uh, all of us, when we when we decided to tackle that project, all of us were already published authors, so we had previous experience on publishing books. And the one thing we thought about was, well, you know, writing a book is great, but somehow the book needs to come al- come alive. And what we thought about is, instead of taking a few examples to illustrate the points we're making, why not create a real case study? And uh, as close as possible to reality, but not a full system, because that will take a lot of books. But why not create a case study that will be basically be the skeleton of a book, that will basically kind of get all the parts of a book to hang together. And we decided to take a case study on trade finance, which is basically uh, what, what a term that describes what companies do the, the, the products, the financial instruments that they do to basically facilitate global trade and global commerce. And I do, I do have a previous experience on trade finance, but that dates back from a long, long time ago, actually half a century ago. So it was actually interesting for me and my two, my two co-authors didn't have any experience. So it was interesting for the three of us to kind of, for me to rediscover and for them to discover trade finance. And we, ta- we took it as an example, letter of credit, because letter of credit is a fairly simple, well, they get complicated, but we, on purpose, we kept things as simple as we could. And we spent quite a lot of time defining basically what a case study would be. And what we said is, why don't we pretend we work for a software company? And that software company basically found that there's a, there are a lot of inefficiencies in trade finance, especially in of credit. So could we really make things more efficient? Could we automate? And we actually pushed the concept all the way to blockchain, and we said, okay, could we actually, at the end of a book, you see in uh, chapter nine, could we actually use blockchain to actually make trade finance more, even more efficient? So, you know, definitely didn't write the ultimate uh, trade finance system. It's not meant to be. But the system is well, actually well defined in appendix. And uh, it has, I mean, we didn't, we didn't write any code, so we didn't go to that point. But we, we, we took the design fairly far. And uh, what's nice with that is really allows us to, each chapter basically says, okay, so now we spend some time explaining to you what scalability is about and so on and so forth and different tactics. So let's show you basically what it means for a system. And I think that that made, us, that made the whole book much more coming alive than it would have been otherwise. Absolutely. And that is how I uh, wrote the Red Book implementing domain-driven design. Mm-hmm. And it's how Tomas and I have written the our latest book, um, Strategic Monoliths and Microservices, having realistic, uh, concrete examples of scenarios um, are very important. And people are going to just be able to, you know, latch on to the idea of the architecture quality attributes that you're talking about or um, whatever aspect of architecture or of domain-driven design or of any topic if you just have a realistic example that they can relate to. So I guess maybe uh, you could comment now, maybe recapping the discussion in this age of 
agile cloud and DevOps, can you kind of pinpoint why architecture, uh, that is software architecture, is still relevant today? Yeah. So, you know, the, I'm kind of going to repeat myself a little bit, but I think it's, it's, it's worth repeating. The first thing we're finding is architecture is becoming a skill, not a role. Okay. So what we're seeing more and more is the days where you had the, the architect coming down from the ivory tower and uh, basically kind of dispensing some pearls of wisdom, drawing some diagrams that nobody understood, those days are gone. Okay. Right now in a team, architecture is everybody's, uh, I would say, I was going to say problem, but problem may not be, it's everybody's task. So, which the corollary to that is that most team members, actually all team members, should really have architectural skills. So the whole, the idea of conceptualizing and be able to think concept rather than basically down to the code and so on, that's important. Okay. Architecture is really also becoming a continuous flow of decisions. Okay. It's not enough to make some decisions initially up front and uh, basically be done with that. Uh, it's actually a few, I think back in, at the beginning of October, I was giving a presentation to a group of engineers in Copenhagen, uh, virtually, of course. I didn't, get, I didn't go to get to Copenhagen virtually, but I was in a presentation. And they wanted really, their, their point was how much acquisition should be done up front versus through the, through the, the life cycle system. And uh, it's a great question because, only, and I don't have the answer, by the way. But what I, the way I'm thinking about it is that at the end of the day, you've got to make some decisions up front. If nothing else, you know, one of the things you're going to need is, for example, to depend on scalability and resilience, you're going to need to have a monitoring framework. Well, that monitoring framework needs to be designed initially. You, you can't really bring, design that and implement it as, a, as an afterthought. Okay. So certain things need to be done up front but not too many. And that's, that's a key thing. And I think that some decisions need to be made up front, not all of them. And it doesn't matter what decision you make, somehow you're going to be wrong. Okay, there's no escaping that. Nobody is right 100% of the time. That's why it's so important for each decision you make to understand the cost of unwinding that decision. Because I don't know how many decisions you're going to have to unwind, but probably more than you think. So the whole thing, so make decisions continuously and kind of correct them continuously, okay? So if I look back at the last 20 years, okay, there has been kind of a, a big conflict between people which are basically the big proponents of up, big upfront design. So let me design everything upfront, let me make all the decisions upfront. And at the other end of the spectrum, you get people who basically tell you, Oh, architecture just emerges. Some kind of, think of a big whale that comes out and the architecture emerges. <sighs> Neither of them, I think, are right. Okay. And the reality is somewhere in between. How much, how, how far to the left or how far to the right? I'm not sure. But certainly, you know, the way to kind of compensate for, you know, all the mistakes you're going to make, because you're going to make mistakes as you architect and design. Or, Compensate for that is continuously make decisions and correct, course correct. Okay. That's why also the feedback loops are so important. Because you're going to put something in production. That thing is not going to be perfect. It's going to have problems. How actually do you compensate for that? Well, with feedback loop. One extreme of feedback loop is one technique that's being used more and more for resilience, which is 10 years ago, we used to think that, okay, so the way to make a system resilient is to make sure the system never, never crashes. Okay? But the five nines, the six nines, and so on and so forth. That's not realistic. Okay? In reality, every system will crash sooner or later. So I think it's much more realistic to say, well, my system is going to crash. What do I do if my system crashes? How do I automatically recover from crash? And how do I compensate for all the things that can go wrong? And at the extreme, how can I predict what's going to go wrong? And there are techniques to do that now. You can use AI for that. It actually, actually works. So the whole point is really to actually recognize that you know, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. We make, continuously make decisions and going to unwind those decisions at some point. The last point I, you really need to think about is technical debt. 
we all create technical debt. And there's nothing wrong with technical debt. Because sometimes, to live a system fast, you have to take a certain amount of technical debt. What's wrong is to think that you will never have to repay that debt. Because sooner or later, you're going to have to repay it. And unfortunately, some int- the interest on that debt accrues very quickly. So when you repay it, that's when you're going to have a big ouch and say, why on earth did I do that? Yeah, um, mom won't be able to put a Band-Aid on it and <laughs> make it all better. <laughs> that one, right? Band-Aids can be expensive. Yeah, yes, these Band-Aids can for sure. So really good, really good advice, good summary of all these points. So it sounds like I don't actually know how many years you've spent in uh, software development, IT, and so forth, but you did reference about 50 years ago being in a in a certain domain. Was that in software? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So now, with this at least 50 years of experience in software development, software architecture, what are three points of advice that you think would be useful to to all the listeners who are trying to be better at this at this topic of software architecture. So this is where I sound like a broken tape recorder with French accent. But uh, the first one is keep in mind architecture is a skill, not a role. Architecture is not anymore the, the purview of the architect. And I'm not even sure it's such a thing as an architect anymore. This was, this was one of my last talks at uh, Travelers, which I gave and, and to, a, to an audience of architects. And of course, that was kind of received with some interesting faces. But it's a fact. Architects basically are, I think, on a way out. Basically, it's architecture is becoming a role. Uh, sorry, a skill, not a role. And that's, that's critical. The second point is think about this continuous flow of decisions. And some of them are going to be right. Some of them are going to be wrong. Hopefully, you're going to make more right decisions than wrong decisions, but we, we don't know. And... The key thing is continuously making your decision and course correcting it. And that's very important based on the feedback you get from the system. The last piece of advice is basically always, yes, it's nice to architect to build your system, but think about monitoring. That system is going to have to grow in production. It's going to have to be monitored. How do you build a monitor framework around that system? If you don't think of it about it early in the process, it's going to be very expensive to actually do that, that monitoring framework. Same way with dealing failure. Your system is going to fail sooner or later. There is no escaping that. So how do you deal with that? I, mean, I wish that you know, people who build trading systems would have thought of that back two years ago and say, okay, so what if our system fails? What if we have this crazy printing day? And what if we can't really run the system anymore? What happens? So I think it's much better to actually think about it a little bit before it happens than that after it happens. So it's not repetition, like uh, boring repetition. It's repetition for emphasis to make sure yeah. everybody uh, understands. And we love your French accent. So thank you. don't worry about that. Um, so thank you so much um, for talking today. And, you know, you made a comment there that uh, I'm just going to key in on this. If, if architecture is a role, not a position, right? Or it's, it's a skill. Maybe I didn't even say that correctly. It, it's it's just something that that people, software developers, do mm-hmm. now, right? They share in the architecture. So it's not. I guess what you said is it's not a role, being that it's not a specific title. Now, if this is becoming the responsibility of even burgeoning software developers, I'm going to say that they need to pick up your book and learn how to use software architecture you know, decisions to pay attention to the quality attributes, to be able to share in this with more experienced software developers and do architecture, right? Architect software. And because it's now everybody's responsibility to do that. Yes, absolutely. I think that the role is becoming software engineering. And I like the term engineering because it's really a software engineer to me covers the whole gamut all the way from architecture down to coding and testing as well and operation as well. So I think what we're probably witnessing is the dawn of an era where we're going to have a lot of software engineers. Now, some of them may be more specialized in some aspects because it's impossible to specialize yourself in everything. You can't be the expert on everything. But we're going to have those teams and those teams, you know, back to Conway's principle, right? Those teams to be 
needs to be organized in such a way that you don't have a lot of long communication lines. Communications are really facilitated. And some people are going to have more skills, for example, in architecture. However, everybody in a team needs to have architecture skills. Everybody in a team needs to have coding skills. Everybody in a team needs to have design skills, of course. Everybody in a team needs to have testing skills and, and even security skills. Security, well, we didn't talk about security today, but security, I mean, one fallacy about security, security is the problem of the security people. Wrong. Okay. Security is becoming everybody's problem. Exactly. And nothing is ever completely secure. So there's a lot of work to do in that area. Okay. So I've actually already said goodbye and then we have to say goodbye again Thank now, you. but it's been a very big pleasure to speak Same with here. you again, uh, Pierre, and let's uh, stay in touch and Absolutely. maybe we can have an update to this after, you know, the book has been out for a year or so, which is just, will be like June of 2022, year, yeah. right? Thank you. Yeah. Good. Okay. We'll see you, okay. Pierre. Take care. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.